welcome back to the disenfranchised podcast uh we are that podcast all about those franchises of one those films that fancy themselves full-fledged franchises before falling flat on their face after the first film i am your host Stephen Foxworthy, and joining me as always, that guy over there with his entire head underneath the icy machine. It is my co-host and buddy, Brett Wright. How's it going, man? You gotta wheeze the juice or whatever he says. No wheeze in the juice, Brett. No, no, no wheeze, wheeze in the juice. juice. No buds chill. Um, <laughs> that's right. We are uh, talking about. Uh, one very specific movie that created one, or I guess one very specific star and, and kind of also catapulted, uh, another man into obscurity fairly quickly. (laughs) Brett, what movie are we talking about today? We're talking about 1992's Brendan Fraser led Encino Man. Yes, we are talking about Encino Man from 1992, directed by Les Mayfield. Uh, quite frankly, I could have used a little more Mayfield, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, written, <laughs> it's terrible, written by George Zaloom and Sean Sheps, and starring Sean Astin, Brendan Fraser, uh, Polly Shore, Megan Ward, uh, Robin Tunney, Patrick Van Horn, the great Rick Common, Michael DeLuise, uh, Kehui Kwan, uh, Mariette Hartley, Richard Mazur, and uh, in a very blink and you miss it cameo, it's uh, it's Rose McGowan in her very first film role. So this movie just kind of minted a lot of uh, a lot of up and coming talent there in the early '90s, if you know what I'm saying. Okay, so that was Rose McGowan. I was like, wait a minute, was that? Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, this is actually her first credited film role, and I did the same thing. I'm like, is that Rose McGowan? Uh, not the only time I looked at an actor in this movie and went, that guy looks familiar, uh, but definitely thought that looking at Rose Mouse, like, is that Rose McGowan? I looked it up and sure enough, that was in fact, Rose McGowan. Cool. Yeah. So this is her first credited film role in 1992, uh, before she would go on to prominence with, uh, movies like Jawbreaker and Scream. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Those, those later nineties films that we enjoy her from so much. And, uh, And also Charmed, if you were into Charmed. Right. I was not, but I understand that people were and that it was a very popular show and that she was on it. So, yeah, indeed. And that's awesome. Uh, so, Brett, you uh, we, we we each had an episode that we could uh, select to kind of uh, fill in. I selected last week's topic Aeon Flux uh, and you selected Encino Man. Uh, what made you select Encino Man? What is your uh, history with this particular film? Um, uh, no particular reason, honestly. Uh, other than just like Brendan Fraser right now is having a big old renaissance. He's getting a lot of, I guess you would say vindication um, Mm -hmm. that uh, everybody that loved him in the nineties is like, man, we still love you. Where have you been? Uh, Thanks for coming back. And it's just been the the sweetest, most endearing thing when he had that interview where he sort of found that out for the first time. Mm -hmm. Um, and just dude is humble as hell and had no idea that so many people loved him. So I thought, why not? Let's like, let's get down to it. Let's talk about Brendan Fraser because yeah, I mean, he's a big part of a lot of people's nineties. Just yeah. Was this your first exposure to Brendan Fraser? I think it was. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I didn't see this movie when it came out obviously, but uh, I did see it 
um, in subsequent uh, syndication. Um, a lot of those Sunday afternoon, uh, you know, flipping through the channels, catch it on TV situations. Sure. So that's, this that's was a frequent rental for me. Uh, uh, rented this one a lot. I mean, it's just a, it's just one of those fun '90s movies, right? Like, right. You can kind of shut your brain off, uh, and you don't really got to think about it too hard, and just go along for the ride. Yeah, I'm mean, this this yeah this frequent rental for me. Watched this one a lot. Was actually a really big Brendan Fraser fan in the '90s as well. Uh, watched uh, most of his movies as they came out on video. Uh, remember seeing George of the Jungle in theaters. Uh, but, you know, I, I did watch a, a lot of his movies. He actually kind of finds a niche, a ni- mm, finds a niche for himself shortly after this um, in adaptations of, of animation. Uh, so he does uh, as we get going into his career, he is in George of the Jungle. He is in Dudley do right. Like he starts doing like that kind of stuff. And then like late 90s, early 2000s, he's, of course, the guy from the mummy he's in monkey bone just making some really interesting bizarre career choices we have of course talked about him before on our looney tunes back in action episode uh but yeah you're you're right with with brendan fraser kind of getting reappraised and reappreciated it seems like a good time to go back and kind of look over what we like about brendan fraser and and why he is such a such an endearing part of the the pop culture landscape at least from where we're sitting now um, but yeah, this was my first exposure to Brendan Fraser. Uh, we rented this one, I think, shortly after it came out. Um, and of course, thought Polly Shore was the funniest human being on the planet because he talked so weird. Um, what were we thinking? What were we as a culture thinking? Really? We ought to be ashamed of ourselves because that's a thing that happened and we all let it happen. Uh, from what I understand, Polly Shore auditioned for the part of Link. And they liked him. He was the front runner until Brendan Fraser came in and auditioned. And they're like, oh, well, this is the guy. But they liked Polly Shore so much that they pretty much just wrote Stoney into the script for him. And they didn't really write much for him. So any most of his lines are improvised. It's Polly Shore talking the way Polly Shore probably talked at the time and trying to be goofy and funny about it. Um, which I find really weird and in retrospect, insanely annoying. Um, but at the time it was the, it was just the funniest possible thing. So I, I've got a lot of questions then. So <laughs> at that point, because does that mean that there wasn't like a friend character? I don't know if there, I don't know if there wasn't a friend character or if there was a friend character and it just was like nothing really there on the page, just like someone that only really hung out with him in school and they kind of beefed up the part for Polly Shore. I really don't have a lot of details on that beyond just he was in the movie. Yeah, because Sean Astin's character is not likable at all. Oh, no. He, um, he is insanely unlikable, which I mean, let's be honest, though, we're, we're coming off of this is an early 90s movie, and this is very much in the vein of kind of that that 80s comedy where like that 80s comedy that's very dependent on like a premise, like just a weird premise, like X does Y kind of a premise. Um, and this, you know, caveman goes to Encino is the premise on this one. But like the. So in, in in a lot of those comedies, the lead is actually a deplorable human being by today's standards. 
Um, and for some reason, we're being asked to root for this terrible person. Uh, in most cases, they are sexual predators in some form or fashion, uh, which I don't know. I mean, in in the case of the rival high school student character, he is absolutely a sexual predator. I'm not entirely sure Sean Aston's character is perceived is portrayed that way, but he could definitely be perceived that way. Yeah, they're both just different kinds of sexual predators. Uh, right. Whereas Sean Aston is more of like the incel style of sexual predator. 100%. Uh, which is, is just as unlikable. Just absolutely. Like right down to the climax of the movie where he's like, what do you mean this girl that I've been stalking loves the caveman? Get him out of here. We can't have that. She's going to love me and no one else. Oh yeah, my just, God, that was terrible. Yeah, it It is. And it's one of those things like I didn't know that I realized it at the time. But then like looking back on it, I'm like, oh, this is really like I I, I, sh- I don't like to use the word cringe, but it's absolutely cringe. It's mm, it's it's gross. Yeah, it's it's the same come to Jesus meeting that I had with high fidelity and how unlikable the main character of that movie is. Right. So and I, that was that was a movie I couldn't get into because again, it's one of those things like I'm supposed to relate to this guy and ooh, I don't like him at all. Yeah, it, it it happens a lot with with movies from the 90s and early 2000s where, you know, you grow up watching them and you don't think anything of it or, you know, God forbid, you know, I'll admit I related to, to the main character of High Fidelity when I was a teenager. And that's not a good look when you look back on it. I mean, it. I think teenagers can I, I think teenagers of that era kind of could look back on it, but I think that's the point is that this guy is, he's relatable to teenagers and not, you know, grown ass men in their thirties, which right. is, I, I understand that's the point. I'm just saying, you know, nowadays, not a great look. No, no, it isn't. But, you know, that aside and acknowledged, mm-hmm. it's still the rest of the movie around him is still entertaining and, you know, does it make any sense? No, but it doesn't have to because it's a ridiculous 90s. It's 90s movie with a ridiculous premise. And right. And I mean, that, this, is, this is the kind of comedy you don't really see get made anymore because it I don't know that I would call it a high concept comedy, but it's like, I, I don't know. For me, the higher the concept, the funnier the movie generally tends to be. I would not call this a super high concept comedy. It's just, you know caveman goes to Encino. Like what if, what if, you know, two kids from the Valley dug up a, a caveman. That is the premise of this movie. It's pretty paper thin. Um, but then like they milk it for as many laughs as possible. And I would say, I don't, I, I would, I will say this with utmost certainty. If anyone else other than Brendan Fraser is cast as link, the caveman, the missing link, get it. Wink. Um, is is cast in this role i don't think this movie works at all because fraser is so charming and he is so sweet and he is so endearing like he brings such a a raw humanistic quality to this character uh in this really stupid really dorky really ridiculous teen comedy um that it it makes this movie seem at least in my memory a lot better than it actually is in execution like, cause I remember this, I was like, oh, Encino Man, this is one of the great comedies of my youth. And I watched it uh, a couple days ago and I was like, really? This is, this is one that I, okay. Interesting. I, I had the same feeling, but uh, you know, 
what, what are you going to do? It's sure. It's because it's early nineties. It it's is. Like, this movie feels so nineties. Like this is one of those movies that you could be like, well, what if somebody asks, what were movies like in the nineties? You could point to this one. This is this movie is very deeply of its time and place in all the good and all the bad ways. Like this movie is very much a product of its time and place. Um, in some ways, I think that's really fun. In other ways, I think that is really gross. But that's kind of the nature of the beast, really. Yeah, they, with, with any movie from a specific era of time. It's just say, weird and, that how old we are, well, how old I feel thinking about mm, that. Like mm-hmm. we, We're looking at the 90s as if we used to look at like the 40s and 50s. And I was like, oh, God, I got so yeah. old. I mean, nowadays they're starting to make nostalgic media for people our age, um, which, you know, we're, we're still in that, you know, 18 to 45 demographic or whatever, you know, for a few more years anyway. But that's, you know, that the, all the all the nostalgic stuff is geared toward people like us, man. Um, they want to make it. So I would not be surprised if in a few years we get an Encino Man reboot, um, quite frankly. Uh, just feels feels like something someone would try. Uh, I'm surprised Polly Shore hasn't tried a little harder in earnest to get his own kind of resurgence because, as previously stated, he was so freaking huge after this movie. Like, I think he is the thing that comes out of this movie the best because the very next year he is the star of Son-in-Law, uh, in which he plays. Uh, what if there was a son-in-law? Um, what if, what if this guy was your son-in-law, I guess? Uh, and then the year after that, he's in the army now, uh, where he plays, um, uh, what if Polly Shore goes into the army basically is the movie. Cause in, in all of these, the joke is Polly Shore is Polly Shore. Uh, and then the next year he's got the one, two punch of a goofy movie where he plays, uh, the, the guy who's the line that was in all the trailers uh, he's obsessed with easy cheese and creates the leaning tower of cheese in his own hand. And um, he is obviously a stoner kid in a Disney movie, which I think is hilarious. Oh, and then absolutely. also in nine and then also in 95, he has jury duty. Uh, and then the next year after that, he's got biodome. And that is the uh, pretty much the extent of the, the Pauly Shore miracle run. He's got a few good years after this movie. And then the year after that, I think we're all sick of him at that point. He's on, he's got his own sitcom called Polly, which runs for all of a season. He is a, a voice in Casper, a spirited beginning also in Casper meets Wendy. Um, like he's got, and then it's TV appearances, TV appearances, TV appearances um, shows up in the Limp Biscuit break stuff video. Um, like just, you know, he, he's pretty much done after 96, uh, which it, I mean, it, it, that it took us four years to get sick of that is kind of amazing. Um, a friend of mine said that he ran into, uh, he was at some event and Stephen Baldwin and Polly Shore were both there, not like in any kind of capacity where they were like promoting biodome or something, but they stopped and talked to Polly. And this was like deep into Polly Shore's washed up era. And uh, one of the friends mentioned, oh, yeah, I was just talking to Stephen Baldwin. And Polly's like, what? Stephen's here? Like, yeah, he was over there. And Polly goes, I'll be right back. And then runs off apparently to go talk to Stephen Baldwin. And um, my friend said he and his buddies felt bad because they just unleashed Polly Shore on an unwitting Stephen Baldwin. Um, which, <laughs> I mean, you know, I get it. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, like I said, I don't really, I don't understand why we let that happen. But, uh, I mean, it, that does it's, remind me. Yeah. Well, well, it does remind me. Well, that's that's a completely different tangent. If you, what do you want? What do you want to say? No, I was, I was just going to say the idea of unleashing, you know, an unwitting, uh, unleashing a, a poly shore on anyone is just a, a kind of a terrifying thought. But you know, we we let that happen. It was the nineties. It was a different time. It was. You know, we didn't know what we were doing. Just like in another 20 years, we're going to look back on all the stuff we're letting happen now and go, why did we let that happen? You know, like yeah. uh, people not getting vaccinated or wearing masks in public or, you know, why did we let that happen, Brad? Well, I, I think we are. Well, it's not like we're letting it happen. Some of us are trying to not let it happen, but. You know. Be responsible, idiots. Wear masks. Get vaccines. Yeah. That is the all official of stance of the we- disenfranchised podcast. <laughs> Yes, we are a disenfranchised support, fully vaccinated people Correct. and mask wearers. Even though we are fully vaccinated, we uh, still wear masks in public. But uh, that does remind me, though, that uh, a little interesting tidbit I saw recently, because, you know, with the resurgence of the Brendan Fraser of it all, uh, mm-hmm. somebody pointed out that in subsequent Polly Shore movies, a character named Link played by mm-hmm. Brendan Fraser, shows up in all of his subsequent movies. Uh, yes, at least in Son-in-Law and in The Army Now. And I think it's not the same character. I think it's just a reference to that character. But he has an uncredited role in Son-in-Law as Link and an uncredited role There's in, not in The Army Now. to confirm or deny. Link. Basically, we have not seen those movies, <laughs> is, is, what, is what that's all about. Uh, but he doesn't well, no, show I've up. Seen, I've seen the scenes. Oh, you have? I have. I've seen the scenes, yeah, and it's, oh, there's okay. not there's not enough information. It is in some cases, especially in the army now, it's just a blink and you miss it cameo. I gotcha. Okay, so like it's not there's nothing else to it. So it's just there's not enough information there to know whether or not it's the same character. Okay, fair enough. I I, I assumed it was not the same character, but you know I I could be wrong. All right, but that is enough. Uh, I guess enough preamble. We we should probably get into the plot in 60 seconds. That is the part of the show where at the behest of our good friend, the coin of justice, uh, we determine which of us is going to recount the entire plot of 1992's Encino man in 60 seconds or less. The coin of justice is ready. Brett, are you ready to call it in the air? I absolutely am. Then do so. Heads. You bastard. It is heads. To quote Breaking Bad, I forget who says the line, uh, he can't keep getting away with it. Uh, And yet, and yet he does somehow. Um, All right. Well, I guess it falls then again to me to recount the plot of Encino Man in 60 seconds or less. Brett, do you have 60 seconds on the clock? I'm currently working on doing that right now. We are good to go whenever you are. All right. I'm ready when you are, sir. All right, your time starts right this minute. A caveman and his female caveman partner get uh, trapped in ice millions of years ago. And then uh, in present day, I guess 1992 Los Angeles, uh, a loser is digging a ditch in his backyard. Uh, there's a bunch of earthquakes because it's Southern California. Uh, his friend Polly Shore shows up being very Polly Shore. Um, and uh, he's a loser and he's digging a hole because he thinks people are going to swim in a swimming pool. He's one of those losers who has delusions that somehow 
uh, getting a date with the most popular girl in school who he used to be friends with when he was younger before before she, quote, achieved babehood is going to get him all the popularity he wants. Uh, she's dating a, a, a bigger douchebag, even played by Adela Louise, which I think is hilarious. Um, eventually, the earthquake unearths the caveman who makes them popular somehow because he's so awesome. And he ends up going to prom. He ends up going to prom with the, the girl somehow. And. Um, the guy tries to expose him as a caveman. No one believes him. They beat him up. Uh, they dance and everyone goes back to the pool party and the cave woman thaws out too. And that's time. I mean, this, this movie has nothing in the way of plot. It is, it is essentially just like the caveman unthaws hijinks ensue. The guy gets the girl somehow like that is, that is this movie emphasis on the somehow. Cause, uh, yeah, she certainly really seems still seems into Link pretty much, but uh, for some reason, because all of a sudden Sean Astin's character knows how to dance, she's into him now. Well, no, it's because all of a sudden Link is actually actually is a caveman, is what it is. Like she doesn't really make that turn until she sees the pictures and realizes that her idiot boyfriend is in fact still an idiot and still a jerk and still probably a date rapist um but is in fact right on this one particular point the fact that sean astin has been lying to her about who link is the entire movie somehow makes him more endearing i guess i mean he was honest with her up front and she didn't believe him i mean yeah okay i don't know that that makes it better (laughs) no no it doesn't i'm not i'm definitely not trying to defend it at all uh but i guess that's how you'd connect those dots uh, you know, then there's the uh, the the sexual politics of this movie are so screwed up, like so screwed up. Um, the Robin Tunney's character. First of all, I want to shout out the history teacher played by the great Rick Ducommon. I don't know if he's a history teacher or the science teacher, because um, not entirely clear. Um, but Rick Ducommon is one of those like great late 80s, early 90s actors who would just show up for a couple of scenes in something and just be incredible. Uh, he's in this in a couple of years earlier. He was in Gremlins 2. His biggest role is probably in Joe Dante's The Burbs, where he plays the neighbor, um, Tom Hanks's neighbor, and he's great in it. He's got like a bit part in Hunt for Red October. Like he just kind of shows up and stuff. And every time I'm like, oh, it's Rick Ducommon's in this movie. And I get really excited. Um and yeah, he just I, I had forgotten Rick Ducommon was the teacher in this movie, and he is great. I love him. But when he is talking to uh, Robin Tunney, um, the, even though he looks yeah pretty ripped that he would, you know, drag a woman back to his cave by her hair and she seems um, <clears throat> uncomfortably into it um, like the sexual. Po- I don't I don't know what they're about. But again, it's just kind of that really shitty late 80s, early 90s kind of thing um that's you know, just gross in retrospect and one of the things that i i don't know it made me enjoy this movie less upon rewatch than it did the last time i watched it yeah so first of all to 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 your point there i think he does like most times when you see a teacher like this in a movie they're not doing a whole lot Mm-mm. Uh, they're just kind of standing there. Maybe they're maybe they say a few things. Maybe they do roll call. A, a real Ben Stein kind of presence, usually. Yeah, but uh, he he's actually teaching a class for a good five minutes, and it's impressive. Right? 
Now, again, it's I am I I think it's always hilarious that whatever the students happen to be learning in a movie is directly directly correlates with whatever the action of the movie is. So they just happen to be toward the end of the school year. They're they finally got into prehistory toward the end of the school year. Um, usually by senior this point, year, no doubt of their senior year, right? This is I love it. So I, I this is like deeply, deeply remedial history that all these kids are taking or they're like, I don't know what what on earth do these kids need to be learning to directly correlate to what's happening in this movie? Um, and it's this they're learning about the the Cro-Magnon man specifically. And then I, I don't know about you, but I don't know if I ever would have went on a senior field trip to a history museum. Maybe that's um, just me. I, I don't know. I here's the thing. My school didn't we didn't really do field trips um, because that was time that you could take away from, you know, classroom learning. Uh, so, yeah, we didn't really take a whole lot of field trips. Um, so, no, we definitely would not have taken a field trip. There also, in fairness, Brett, are not a lot of great history museums around us. No, you're right. But I mean, it, it feels like the sort of field trip that you'd go on in elementary school, maybe middle school. Sure. I can't or maybe imagine at you know early high school, maybe early high school, maybe. But again, maybe. by your senior year in high school, at least in the part of the country that we live in, your civics stuff is usually taken up by like economics and sociology, perhaps, or um, government, U.S. government. Like it's not you know, prehistoric history. Maybe now, which is why I think it might make more sense that this would be a science class than a history class, because you could certainly, again, learn about those prehistoric, you know, forms of man. But again, this late in your senior year, you're getting to Cro-Magnon man. Weird. Seems very weird. It it does. And again, it's it's a plot mechanic that I am absolutely overthinking. Exactly. But it's one of those things that I always notice in movies, like everything's just sort of very very keenly tuned in to what these kids are experiencing in their real life. It's the, it's the Harry Potter thing. Like every year in school, they learn some piece of magic that ends up helping them defeat the villain at the end of the film. Right. It's just, it's just a plot device. You know, I said at the beginning about this movie, you just got to turn your brain off. Or else, or else <laughs> yeah, it helps. It helps. It helps a lot. It does. Uh, but my, to my second point about that though, the, the sexual politics, at least of that scene, I think it's more that these are, supposed to be more than likely under 18 characters in Which high makes school. makes it even, even creepier, quite frankly. It does. Because, I mean, look, I'm on the internet enough to know that the whole, like, being turned on by a guy that sort of takes what he wants, quote-unquote, um, is a thing women are into. You know, it's a whole consensual thing. I won't go too deep into it. This is a mostly family-friendly podcast. But is it because we swear a lot on this show? <laughs> I mean, we don't swear that much. Look, I do the edits. I post the episodes. That explicit button isn't touched every single time. <laughs> just um, most of them. <laughs> just most of them. And a lot of times I press the button because I don't remember if we swore. Uh, so <laughs> let's just play it safe and push this button here. Just in case. I mean, you don't want to make it like, you know, clean when it's not. So sure. better be safe than sorry most of the time. Correct. Sure, sure. But. What I'm saying is that I think the the creepiness of that is more so that they are under 18 kids in high school and not so much the subject matter, because the subject matter in certain circles is absolutely a thing. I'm not trying to kink shame. I just think it plays as gross. 
I'm just saying. Sure. I, I see I see where you're coming from. I'm just saying for a woman to be turned on by that sort of thing is not weird. Not again, not trying to kink shame. Sure. I guess. Not not my not my not my point. All right. Fair enough. But I'm just, you know, again, it's that but it it plays into that weird late 80s, early 90s sexual politics in comedies kind of thing where they play pretty fast and loose with some stuff. And you're like, mm, it's kind of gross. Like in retrospect, a lot of that stuff is just is mm, not 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 that great on rewatch is all I'm saying. Yeah, agreed. But I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just, you know, I'm trying sure. to I, hey, yeah. just, I, you know, it, we don't, yeah. we don't kink shame here is all I'm saying. That's no, no, we don't. But, uh, so yeah, I mean this, um, let's talk about, let's talk about something else, please. Anything else. <laughs> Good idea. Um, let's move uh, on. Yeah. 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 Like, like the idea of moving on from this topic. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, yeah, the, so we got the, also how easy is it for, uh, groups of underage teenagers to get into a, uh, a very rocking um, bar in the middle of the day. Uh, that bar, first of all, is in Fuego. They are having a party up in there. Um, and second of all, it is the middle of the freaking afternoon on a weekday. I, I now I'm usually working at that time, so I don't know. Are bars usually packed around that time? And are they packed with people who are full on partying in the middle of the afternoon? on a weekday is that something that happens often so you got to make some leaps in logic here but i think i could explain it so (laughs) first of all it is a hispanic i am turning you into just the apologist for this movie is that maybe uh although i I do like to do this sometimes if it's easy enough because sometimes it isn't sometimes they've just thrown logic out the window and there's no explaining it away I, I feel like the most of this movie does this. Like there's a packed bar in the middle of a school day because they need there to be a packed bar in the middle of a school day. Well, no, okay. So, okay. Go on an adventure with me here. All right. So it's, it's a Hispanic bar. So you could say that maybe a mostly Hispanic bar in the middle of the day could be packed with some sort of party because of a siesta situation. Because... Don't look at me like that. Like, look, there is a clear time of day. I'm pretty sure this is still a thing where Mexican workers go. They have like an hour or two break in the middle of the day called a siesta. Now, this is this may be old information. I may sound incredibly racist right now. Uh, <laughs> if, if I if I am, uh, I'm going to edit all this out. But, hence, hence the look on my face. <laughs> Honestly. Um. It's most closely associated with Spanish culture, uh, so not necessarily uh, South American culture, uh, the or Mexican culture, which you would imagine would probably be more prevalent in the Southern California area. The siesta takes place in the afternoon. The exact time of day varies depending on locale. The most common siesta time is between two and five. Okay, so then I don't know. You could still maybe use that as an explanation. But but you're right. I mean, there's probably going to be more uh, Mexican than Spanish, particularly because when they get the bar to clear out, they call immigration. They call out that the police are immigration police specifically. Yeah. 
Um, but, which I but also honestly, same- this feels honestly, it feels like the movie is making a bunch of uncomfortable racist stereotypes and cramming them all into one this one little section of the movie, because uh, there's there's a lot of that kind of stuff in there. Which is what I was about to say that it could just be a very racist generalization. Like every Spanish person has a siesta in the middle of the day. So let's make this work. It doesn't matter where the siesta is actually from culturally. Right. Uh, Or, or maybe something even more racially insensitive or uncomfortable that I will not mention. Uh, It just, yeah, it just, it just feels like, which now that you've said that actually probably makes more sense. And I just feel bad for trying to logic it away now. So my apologies. Um, (laughs) And none of this will now make the final episode. Uh, I mean, it might just because, you know, own up to it, man. But uh, you want to learn. I, I It feels like it, it uh, hence the face I was making, honestly, earlier that you were trying so hard to, to logic this away using that particular angle because that makes it feel super gross. Um, again, one of those things of this movie that I don't feel like it really holds up very well. Like if that is what they're doing, like, again, I'm more I'm more forgiving of the the lazy screenwriting that, Oh, we need a bar to be open in the middle of the day just so that like a a couple of runaway students on a, uh, that are supposed to be taking part of a driver's ed class would end up there somehow. Um, then the other uncomfortable implications, uh, of, of just, you know, a rocking bar in the middle of the afternoon on a weekday. Yeah. I guess I guess it does kind of feel like they just wrote themselves into a corner and didn't know how to write out of it. Yeah. So. And so they relied very heavily on some very, very lazy, very uh, gross and uncomfortable stereotypes. Yeah. So my apologies for trying to explain that away. Uh, yep. It's uh, not not cool. Not great. Um, I mean, maybe one or two funny moments therein, but by and large, just like a part of the movie that I'm like, this only exists so that we can get them in prison for some reason. Like we get our two main characters in prison and and that leads to their falling out as friends and like Dave trying to ship him away. And it's not because he ended up in prison that he's mad in the most incel, uncomfortable, gross early 90s male hero it's because the girl he likes likes the other guy instead of him like that's the real reason he wants to send him away like it's mm, so dumb it's so dumb this movie is dumb Eh, it is yeah you're not wrong um but again it's a 90s teen comedy i don't know why i'm expecting anything from this movie but i mm. but you know what's great in this movie is the scene where um, the dog comes running in to uh, into uh, Dave's house and his dad like finds the dog. And then all of a sudden there's these Norwegian guys that are shooting at the dog. And Dave's dad is like trying to get the dog away from. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of Richard Mazur's other great movie. 1982 is the thing. That's I'm sorry. That's what I was thinking of. That's that's a much right. better Richard Mazur performance and movie, quite frankly. Right. No, right. I, I mean, it's easy to get the two confused. Right. I mean, they both have dogs, both have Richard Mazur with a beard. It, you know, it's understandable. Right. Exactly. I did text you as I was watching this movie and say 10 bucks if you can tell me who play, who is playing um, Dave's dad, Sean Astin's dad, without looking at his IMDb. And uh, you you could not do it. No, I knew he. I knew he looked familiar, but I, I couldn't really place it. He, uh, he a, plays Clark in the Thing. So this is the sort of game that Stephen likes to play, where he's like, "Hey, guess this thing," and I'm like, "Man, I really don't want to guess this thing." 
I suck at these games. That's why I've started offering you money if you can. (laughs) To incentivize you to play along. (laughs) I appreciate that. No problem. And I would have paid up too. But you looked at his IMDb. You're like, he was in the thing. And then I sent you a picture of him with the Husky. And I was like, he was. He loved those dogs. Um, And he did love those dogs. Um, Speaking of dogs, they use the, the early in the movie, Dave and Stoney find a bowl. I'm sorry. Polly Shore's character is named Stoney. And it's the dumbest thing in the world. Because they want to call the caveman Stony too, because he's from the Stone Age. And then when they need a place for the fake exchange student to be from, they say he's from Estonia. Like this movie gets way too much use out of out of the the Stony thing. Um, and again, I have a hard time forgiving this movie for creating the the Poly Shore phenomenon in the early nineties. Like, ugh. Because, yeah, most of his dialogue is unintelligible gibberish. I, That's mainly my problem. Yeah. So, again, mo- and I think I mentioned this earlier, but it seems like from what I understand, they didn't really write a lot of dialogue for him or they had just kind of a vague like notion of his dialogue. And so they pretty much let him do whatever. So the entire way of the way that he talks and speaks and interacts is Polly Shore being Polly Shore. Um, including like down to the, I don't think he had a costumer on this movie. I would be very surprised if someone costumed him for this movie. It's saying, it seems very much like he was just, he just like picked his clothes out of his own wardrobe and showed up on set and may or may not have had an idea of what was going on. That's anyway, completely logical, but I'm not, I mean, I've already tried to explain way too many things away. I tried (laughs) to explain away his, wardrobe choices that's just seems ill-advised i mean yeah well i mean paulie shore was in the early 90s on record as um getting some elements of his look out of his mother's closet so and i think paulie shore was probably one of pop 90s pop culture's earliest examples of a man who wore woman's clothes at least in at least for for people of our generation obviously like men had worn women clothes women's clothes for a long time uh, then you got the Dennis Rodman of it all, just kind of doing whatever he wanted. And, and I mean, Polly Shore and Dennis Rodman probably of a piece on some level in that regard. Um, I don't know. I don't want to speculate, but there you go. At any rate, Dave and Stoney find a bowl. Before the caveman gets on Earth, they find a bowl. And the bowl is used in so many different ways in this movie. It's kind of ridiculous. At one point, it is the dog food bowl. At another point, it is a snack bowl that they're eating chips out of. Uh, like, I don't know about you, but I would not use one single bowl for both of those applications, regardless how, of how well I washed it. Is that just me? I mean, I look, man, you know, living that bachelor life like I do now, <laughs> I relate. I can relate to that. Sometimes All you right. don't want to wash another bowl, man. Sometimes, you know, you but just, would you, you wash would the, you, you wash the same bowl? But would you eat out of the bowl that your cats had eaten out of? If you washed it good enough. Okay, man. May, all right. Maybe that's just me. I just I just know I would not eat out of one of my dog's bowls, regardless of how well I washed it. I don't trust my washing ability that much, maybe, I guess. Maybe that's the problem. I don't know. Now, I mean, really, more, my question more so is, why don't you have a dedicated dog bowl like most people do? We do. This is what I'm saying. I would not wash out my dog's bowl and then eat food out of it, is what I'm saying. 
Like they seem to, because at one point, again, the bowl that they find is the dog food bowl. Like Link gets down on the floor and eats the dog food, which is actually cookie crisp with the dog on the floor. And then like later in the movie, like at the end of the movie, when they decide they don't want to go to prom and then actually do end up going to prom, um, they're eating like chips out of the, out of that same bowl. Well, no, that's my question. Why did the dog not already have a dedicated dog food bowl? Oh, okay. Why did Point they taken. why did they use that one? I I just I don't Again, it just here's the thing. I I think this movie defies logic by being completely illogical. Um no one in this movie behaves like a human being. Nothing in this movie makes any lick of sense whatsoever, and you and I seem to be just perennially flummoxed by the whole thing. Yeah, I for me personally, it's the uh, I started the episode by saying you got to shut your brain off, and then we spent the last hour not doing that. <laughs> uh, so, touche. Yeah, we we we've uh, much. I mean, much to my uh, chagrin, uh, much to your joy and your anguish. Yeah, yeah, because I'm not editing any of that out. So, <laughs> too much work. I understand. I mean, it'd be it, honestly, it probably would be way too much work to cut around. So, uh, look, I had perfectly uh, normal, uh, perfectly fine intentions, uh, but uh, it's Dude, ill advice. They're real advice. Don't, don't belabor the point. It, it it's not a good look, man. It's not a good look at all. Period. Uh, I, true, but you know, the more you keep coming back to it, it just like. Hmm. Cool. We'll scrap the whole episode. Got it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> There's just going to be uh, a big chunk of conversation missing. Got it. <laughs> this will be our shortest episode ever. Um, so let's, let's. I do want to talk a little bit about Michael DeLuise because he actually has what I thought was the funniest moment in this movie, even though it is super gross and weird. Uh, just the visual of it was really funny when Sean Astin is trying to flirt with uh, Robin in uh, history slash slash science class and like she like shows it shows her waving back and then his head just kind of slowly like leans into frame and he just mm, just starts shaking his head i don't know why i find that so funny but i laugh at that every freaking time um i think that is maybe my favorite part of this movie is just the image of his head just slowly leaning into frame and then his head just shaking back and forth again it's super possessive super gross i don't like it but at the same time i'm kind of like um that's really funny (laughs) it's just a funny the visual image of it is really funny i like the for me i love the comedic um sensibility of something slowly coming into frame like because the filmmaker knows we're making a movie. So I just love that visual of something just kind of slowly leaning into frame. Yeah. It's, it's a classic bit I've seen it in many a gift form on the internet for many a year. It's great. I love it. Um, but this is Michael DeLuise, who is the son of the great, the great Dom DeLuise. Uh, and uh, he's got a couple of brothers that are in a lot of stuff as well. Um, he, at this point is probably best known as, uh, officer Joey Penhall on 21 jump street, uh, a role he reprised in the, uh, recent 21 jump street, uh, movie. Um, but he is also the, uh, the same year this comes out, he's in Wayne's world. He's, he then goes on to play, uh, the same year, uh, or two years after this movie comes out, 
uh, a character called Tony Piccolo in Sequest 2032, excuse me. And uh, probably one of my favorite of his appearances, he's in an episode of Third Rock from the Sun uh, because one of his brothers was a regular on Third Rock and he and his other brother, all of them show up. So it's uh, along with their father, Dom DeLuise, all of them show up in the same episode. Dom DeLuise plays uh, his son, uh, David DeLuise's father in the episode. And then he and his brother play their, basically their father's muscle. Uh, and I think also his sons. So like you got four DeLuise's on the screen at one time. Uh, and it's great. I love it. It's one of, one of my favorite uh, ep- uh, moments from that show, uh, which is a show that uh, I enjoy a lot. And yeah, there you go. The, um, but yeah, Dom DeLuise, Peter DeLuise and Michael DeLuise all show up in that movie. So, or in that episode of that show. So yeah, it's pretty funny. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, then you don't. Uh, so, uh, Michael DeLuise was on Sequest. Peter DeLuise was on Stargate. So, you know, those DeLuises, man. Everywhere. Everywhere. We love the DeLuises and, uh, RIP Dom because Dom was a great one. He's a very funny guy. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, uh um, he host uh, Candid Camera. He hosted Candid Camera. I remember that. Oh, did he really? For a little while, I believe. I I knew Dom DeLuise mostly as a voice actor when I was a kid because it was mostly because of stuff like All Dogs Go to Heaven, Five Goes West, or I guess American Tale, and then Five Goes West. He was in both. But yeah, and then he also did a. Uh, an audio or a children's audiobook when I was a kid, one of those like uh, read along and listen kind of things that was really popular when we were kids. And uh, it was Streganana. And it was really great because he put the, you know, all the, all the uh, emphasis on everything. He's just a funny guy, funny guy, pizza, the hut, you know, Dom, we love Dom DeLuise. What's not to love? Yeah. He did a lot of Mel Brooks movies, right? Like he was in Robin yeah. and Men in Tights. I remember that. Yeah. They were really good friends. Apparently. Like he's doing the Godfather impression in, in Men in Tights, right? Right, yeah. Yeah. He's great. I love Dom DeLuise. What a, but he's, what a only, guy. He's, only, he's only doing the Godfather impression because he just got back from the dentist and he still had the stuff in his mouth. <laughs> and then he spits it out. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And then he talks normal after that. Right. It's uh, he's so funny. What a funny guy. Love him. Love him to death. Um, but yeah, that's I mean, a lot of good stuff. Brendan Fraser, we love you. You're the reason we're doing this episode. Anything else you want to say about Encino Man, Brad? Uh, haven't I said enough, Steven? <laughs> I didn't know if there's anything. I mean, I'm not asking you to, def- I'm, I, here's just to clarify, not asking you to defend this movie any longer. Just, you know, anything else you want to say about it? anything else you want to say about maybe Brendan Fraser or any other aspect of the film? Uh, cause we've not really dug too deep on the Brendan Fraser of it. all. Again, I did say he is the only reason this movie works at all. And I am absolutely going to stand by that. Uh, it first of all, this movie, as we've as we've as we mentioned, doesn't really work. But to the extent that it does work, it's ma- mostly due to Frazier's performance. Yeah, because I mean, he doesn't he doesn't really talk much. It's all in like the his acting performance, and that I think that's what makes it so great. Yeah, I mean, there's there's just and I think this helps him, at least in the early in in, throughout the 90s, kind of helps him in his career. But there is an inherent sweetness about him as an individual and also a humor to like he is he's able to play Link 
in both a way that is over the top and ridiculous in terms of like the physical comedy and the faces that he's making, but also he's very sweet and very genuine. And at no point do you think like this guy is as big a creep. Like he is the likable character in this movie. And because your other leads are so inherently unlikable, it really, I think makes this movie, it, it makes this movie not a complete waste like if like there's a reason we're talking about this movie, it's because it's it's because of Brendan Fraser, honestly. Oh yeah, yeah. Brendan Fraser is in this movie. God, could God, could you imagine this movie if Polly Shore had gotten the link role? They uh, also, according to the IMDb trivia, they also were uh, trying to get Nicolas Cage in this movie uh, as Link oh at one point. Um, this is another thing that I read. There was another actor that uh, Jim Carrey also. They wanted to try to get as Link, which I, I think Carrie could have pulled it off. I don't think I think he could have pulled off the physicality of the role, certainly. But I think, again, looking at some of the comedies Jim Carrey was doing around that time, I don't know if he would have captured just like I said, the the inherent sweetness and humanity of Link the way that Brendan Fraser does. Yeah, I suppose that sort of performance of Jim Carrey would come later in his career. Maybe this was too early for that sort of thing. Because at this point you're it's you've got at this point you're you're looking at in living color Jim Carrey, which is that over the top <laughs> kind of thing that he was doing. I mean that was all he was doing at that point. Like that was two years later you get Ace Ventura and that's all that character is. And then you get the mask and Dumb and Dumber and it's all kind of building on that weird persona that he's kind of built for himself that's that's what a jim carrey performance is at that point um so yeah i don't think 1992 jim carrey works as the lead of this movie but i think maybe a a a post humbling jim carrey like jim carrey after 99 or after 2000 maybe uh, jim carrey after the majestic perhaps uh you're able to get kind of this this kind of more humanistic by that point he's too old to be convincingly uh seen as a high school student but i think you've got a, a better chance of him delivering i think a more grounded performance at that point you definitely wouldn't have gotten that out of Paula shore and you absolutely would not have gotten that out of nicholas cage yeah so for sure um and I mean, here's the thing. Nicolas Cage, I think, is a great actor. I don't want to disparage at any point Nicolas Cage. Um, but again, and he did. He won an Oscar around this time, if I'm not mistaken. Let me let me figure out when Nicolas Cage won his Oscar, because it might have been, honestly, right around this time. He won for Leaving Las Vegas was the movie that he won for. So that movie comes out in 1995. Oh, so he's still a few years off from that. Um, but what is Nicolas Cage doing in 91? Let's find out. Or in 92. So it's Honeymoon in Vegas. So he's still in his comedy phase. He would, I guess, would not be too outside the realm of possibility. He's doing Honeymoon in Vegas, Amos and Andrew. He's done Wild at Heart, the David Lynch movie a couple of years before. Vampire's Kiss, Raising Arizona. So he is in his comedy Moonstruck in 87. So he's definitely in his in his comedy phase at this point. So it would not have been outside the realm of possibility. But again, the idea of uh, Nicolas Cage playing a high school student, pretty, pretty ridiculous, because at this point he would have been in his uh, early 30s or I would say closer to mid 30s when this movie ends up coming out. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so, absolutely wouldn't have worked then. But so, you know. It's, it's one of those uh, right 
place, right time, mm-hmm. right person. Uh, and I mean, this this basically launches Brendan Fraser's career, right? Like he right. goes on to make all those great films, especially The Mummy. The Mummy is the one that everybody comes back to and remembers the fondest. That's uh, the one that's getting the big push on on Twitter these days, for sure. Honestly, since 2017, when they tried to reboot that movie again, uh, a movie we will 100% talk about at some point. We're, we're, we're getting there. Don't even worry about it. Um, but yeah, absolutely. That like the mummy is where the love is. There's there's still a little bit for Tarzan as well. I've seen, but it is it is mostly the mummy for Tarzan, so, or not Tarzan, George of the Jungle. Okay, Sorry. I've not seen the George of the Jungle love. I I do occasionally uh, see people who who watch Gods and Monsters for the first time and realize that he's incredible in that movie because uh, he is. Also, if you've ever wanted to see Brendan Fraser's penis. Uh, you can see it in the movie Gods and Monsters. Well, yeah, there you go. That, go. Check that out. If that's something that you're into. I'm just saying. Into, you, yeah. you can you can totally see that. Look, Brendan Fraser was a heartthrob around that time, okay? A lot of people really wanted to. So that's I mean, it's late nineties. And um, you know, he he does come out of a swimming pool without any clothes on. And Ian McKellen is happy to see him. So that's all, that's all, that's all I'll say. It's, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's good. It's a good movie. Uh, actually, Gods and Monsters is an, is an insanely good movie. Maybe the best Bill Condon movie. Um, like, it's really good. Uh, highly recommend. Do check out. It's uh, uh, Ian McKellen. One of his Oscar nominations was for that movie. So worth your time if you want to check that out. And, and, and as a bonus, as a treat, you can see Brendan Fraser's penis if you're into it. If you're so into that sort of thing. If you're in, if that's the kind of thing you're into, then you can see it. If if you're not into that kind of thing, you can see it too. Because again, we don't kink shame on this podcast. No, it's. I mean, if whether you want to or not, it's in the movie. So there you go. So uh, so with the ascent of Brendan Fraser, which I think was slower, but with the uh, the absolute launch of Polly Shore into the stratosphere as a result of this movie, why did we not see Encino Man two and Encino Woman, Brett? I mean, honestly, that's a fantastic question that even I don't know the answer to because we even get. What is what at the time I would imagine was supposed to be a sequel hook, but only ended up being a I'm going to make more movies hook uh, was the <laughs> I'll be back from Polly Shore at the end. You of mean the, the I'll be back act? Yes, that I wasn't about and to you, do a Polly Shore impression, but thank you. <laughs> but you all they also I mean, it's not hard. You just take a breath in between like a, in between a literal vowel. It's, it's how you do a Polly Shore impression. Sure. Um, but. They, but you also set up the premise like it's literally the first movie, but with a girl this time. Um, and I, you know, if 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 hijinks and hilarity ensue when it's Brendan Fraser, think of how much more hijinks and hilarity would ensue if it's Sandra Hess who plays the uh, the, the role of Cave Nug in this movie. Yes, that is how she is credited. I'm sorry to america again this is a thing that happened and we let it happen what the hell is wrong with us because like look we can intuit through context clues that that is probably a misogynistic term but at the same time we don't really know because it's a made-up word to Paul Shore made up yeah it, and that that that's that's i think my big problem with the language of this film is half of the vocabulary is stuff you have to infer based on context from Polly Shore. And sometimes the words don't mean the same thing. I swear he uses the we, the word wheeze in about three or four different contexts throughout the movie. Um, crusty too. And greasy. 
Like, are these positive or negative attributes? I'm not sure. Based on context, it's difficult to tell. Steven, I'm not even sure he knows. <laughs> I mean, he's, in fairness, Pauly Shore is probably stoned out of his mind through the entirety of this movie and the entirety of his Hollywood career. Uh, I would not be surprised. Uh, again, not meaning to besmirch the good, good name of Pauly Shore, he said sarcastically. Um, but yeah, I, I, I fully, fully doubt there's much. I don't know. But, you know, I... <laughs> Nug. What kind of name for that is a woman? Nug. Like that feels know. that feels productive in '92. Like what the hell? I don't know, man. I I don't I don't and I don't want to know to be honest with yeah, you. Touche. I mean, I mean that's that's probably that's probably the right way. That's probably the right answer. I mean, it's it's maybe short for nugget, I guess. But like, what does that even mean? Correct. Um, yep. I mean, I know. At least I think I know because I don't. I don't do it, but I think it's a term in the weed smoking community. Uh, this is a good time for us to do uh, our new recurring segment. Stephen looks on Urban Dictionary for the definition of a word, a street word he doesn't know. <laughs> Stephen does research for a thing that Brett just said he knows nothing about. <laughs> I mean, that's a recurring segment on this show. It is. Um, okay, so Nug. Definition number one, noun, a high quality bud of marijuana. Okay. Two, the dank. Three, see ganja. Nugs are an another definite. Nugs are animals which populate the underground locations of Thedas within the world of Dragon Age. They are small, hairless, nearly blind creatures with pointed snouts for digging. They resemble a cross between a rabbit and a pig or a naked mole rat or an aardvark. Can be used as a dwarven insult. Uh, definition three, a super cute person that everyone just wants to love and cuddle. I, there, there are others, but I'm going to just stop there. Uh, at, and one of them, yes, is short for nugget. So, you know, there you go. I, you know, Urban Dictionary always surprises me in that one term can have wildly different definitions and just isn't isn't the English language just the most fucked up thing you've ever seen. Hey, uh, second only to this movie. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I've seen Cool World. Um <laughs> <laughs> A movie we will also talk about. I can't wait to do that. Oh, it will not be the first Ralph Bakshi movie we talk about. It will be the last. Um, but uh, but yeah, you would think that Polly, if, if Polly Shore really wanted to, he probably could have leveraged Encino Woman. Uh, and maybe that's just it. Maybe he just became so popular so quickly. And then by the time he had faded into obscurity just four years later, um, no one wants an Encino Man movie. Is, is real. I mean, this movie is kind of a flash in the pan kind of a thing. And it's only enduring legacy is that of the fact that it gave us Brendan Fraser and the weasel himself, Polly Shore. Like, that's it. That's what this movie has given us um, for good or ill. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you be the judge, America. Yeah, I mean, Sean Astin, which we haven't really talked about, doesn't really do much until Lord of the Rings, right? After those. I mean, after this, let's so let's do a brief sidebar on Sean Astin. I, I was I'm kind of talking around him because his character is so awful, but he himself seems to be, by all purposes, a good human being. At least he's not been canceled yet. Um, but before this, he's a big deal. I mean, he is the son of Hollywood royalty. Um, his mother is Patty Duke. His uh, his adoptive uh, stepfather is John Astin. Um, so, I mean, he's 
well connected, but he gets his start at least for for our purposes here in another movie we'll probably cover, uh, The Goonies in 1985, the Richard Donner film. And then he's kind of just acting through most of his childhood. Like he's in stuff all through the eighties. He's in the movie toy soldiers, which is about, uh, I think one of those, like what if terrorists took over your school kind of movies, like a la red dawn. Um, but this is his, I mean, he makes toy soldiers the year before this. So he's pretty much been steadily acting since 85. Um, and then the year after this, he goes on to be Rudy. He's not even Rudy yet. When this movie comes out, Brad, Oh, really? I thought that was, but okay, I guess it was before this, but I don't have a frame of reference for this early into the 90s, so okay. Right. Fabulous. I mean, I would, and here's the thing, because I live in Indiana, and because my uncles live in northern Indiana, Rudy was a seminal film for me growing up, as was Goonies. Um, I mean, Rudy is, is you know, my my uncle is a Notre Dame super fan. He has, at one point in, in an old house, he had a bathroom that was decorated entirely in Notre Dame memorabilia, um, including a, a football autographed by two different variations of the team through their through their early 90s run. Um, you know, dude loved Notre Dame. So Rudy was a very important film. But after this, he also does the made for TV movie based on the Kurt Vonnegut uh, story at Harrison Bergeron. Uh, he's in Courage Under Fire. He's in Bullworth icebreaker the sky is falling um and then he in 2001 you get lord of the rings um and then you get the subsequent films the year after those movies 51st dates which uh, you know again the is one of those things like i can't believe the guy from 51st dates is blah 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 like and it's kind of one of those wait you know him from 51st dates and not lord of the rings how dare you internet attack kind of thing but and even now he just kind of like will show up and stuff but the the guy has steadily been working in hollywood since the mid 80s and honestly he was in a couple of things pre pre goonies as well just as a child actor including a 1981 tv movie called please don't hit me mom which may may be the most effed up movie title I've ever heard. Man, this episode has been something else, hasn't it? Oh my gosh. Maybe we should just scrap this entire episode and record something else. No, no, this is staying now. All of this is staying in. This is... Uh, oh my if gosh. If I could put a double explicit tag on this episode, I would. This is... Uh, Ooh. He's also in War of the Roses, one of one of the great Danny DeVito movies, War of the Roses. So, I mean, you know, he's he works pretty steadily from throughout the 80s, 90s into the 2000s. Like he's just kind of one of those guys who's always working, even though he might not be working on something you've seen. He's 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 a working actor. Uh, you can also, I think, purchase a cameo from him for a couple hundred bucks. So well, he's one of those actors who's on cameo. So there you go. Neat. Yeah. So if you want Sean Aston to talk to you directly cameo.com um but yeah would i i think there's a part of me that would be interested to see what they did with encino woman there's another part of me that thinks that would have been an even grosser abuse of power than this movie was so probably a good thing this movie did not spawn a franchise yeah despite all of Polly shore's uh insistence to the contrary at the end of the film um, yeah, which is really kind of a combination of the Ferris Bueller thing. Uh, the you're still here. It's over. And the um, 
you know, that, that constant like, hey, we'll be back. Don't worry. You haven't seen the last of us thing that would often pop up at the end of sequels or in this era, like Mac and me or something. So it's kind of a combination of those two things. But we we mercifully did not get a sequel to this movie. And uh, the reason why might also have something to do with the fact that this movie grossed $40 million domestic and not much overseas at all to speak of. Um, no production bu- budget was really uh, given for this movie because ultimately who really cares <laughs> about this movie uh, in the long run. Uh, but it opened at number four in the box office on May 22nd, 1992. It is of the three movies that opened this week. It is the third oh. um, in first place. Not even a new release in its second weekend is Lethal Weapon 3. Speaking of Richard Donner movies, Lethal Weapon 3, which is, I think, the third best Lethal Weapon movie. All right. Maybe the fourth. I don't know. Those everything after two is kind of not great. Uh, in second place, and speaking of not great, uh, speaking of third movies, uh, Alien 3, which is, I mean, it's not great. It's fine. I think it's probably better than Lethal Weapon 3. But, you know, the the movie that kind of shapes the rest of David Fincher's career forever. In yeah, third. And, and the original, not great. I mean, you'd go watch like a director's cut or read the script of what the original was supposed to be. Well, there's or... never been a director's cut of Alien 3. The What we have is the 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 factory cut uh, or the assembly okay. cut okay but all right well, david fincher has never done a director's cut and never will because he hates that movie semantics uh, you know what i meant uh but but i just i just wanted to clarify because hey sure. the internet loves semantics and getting into semantic arguments it does as as you well know i am aware okay fair enough but anyway yes don't don't watch just the original og cut of that movie like or honestly, go read the original idea of what the third movie was supposed to be. It's way better than what we got, period. I was going to say, yeah, the concepts and, and the, 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 pl- the ideas that they had, I think, would have been a lot better. Also, what would have been better is not killing off, you know, <laughs> the character that the entire second movie was about saving. <laughs> Probably would have been great. Yeah, that, that would have been a great idea. Yeah. What do I know? But yeah, that would have been that would have been keen. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. In third place, also new this week is the movie Far and Away, which is uh, the Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, Ron Howard movie um, that I literally just know because it's the Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman and Ron Howard movie. Like, I know nothing else. I think they play Irish people who oh, come to America. This is another one of those situations. You just unlocked a deep, deep memory for me. Um, what so I do. in middle school, in eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, the group of teachers that I had in eighth grade, because that's how they did things at my middle school, you were put into a group separated. We were all separated into groups that had like four or five teachers each. In my group of teachers, they thought they would teach uh, that era of time um, for like the, you know, claiming land and mm-hmm. uh, all of the, the, I forget the name of that time period. Um, but, uh, they did that, uh, uh, whole thing. We watched that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we went out to, uh, the football field and we actually had to run and claim plots of land. Oh gosh. That sounds miserable. <laughs> uh, I mean, look for, for young preteen teen me, it was a fun time. Sure. Uh, for 37 year old me, yes, that sounds terrible. 
Uh, <laughs> well, here, but, let's be honest. I have not gotten, uh, I, I have gotten significantly less in shape now, but I've never really been in shape. Uh, so I, that would have just, that just sounds miserable for me at any age, really. <laughs> yeah. There, there was a time in my life where I didn't mind running, but I don't think there's ever been a time in my life when I liked running. <laughs> yeah. But now definitely not. I am grossly out of shape and it's not a good look. Um, as, as most of this podcast has been for me, um, <laughs> but I can say though that you should, you should, you should go check out that movie because it is, I mean, look, it's, it's Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. First of all, is Ron Howard on top of that. And it's just, it's just, it's another one of those like distinctly nineties movies for me where it's just like, you can just go watch it and have a good time. And it, Maybe learn a little bit about history. I don't know how historically accurate it is. Probably not much. It might be, um, but it's just it's just a fun movie. I haven't watched it in forever, but I remember really enjoying it at the time. So I literally haven't watched it in forever because I haven't watched it. Yeah. So um, although I do love Nicole Kidman, I think she's a great actress, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm a fan. So that yeah, so that was just quick trip down memory lane. So weird, instead of Brett's happens. video game corner, we're looking at uh, Brett's memory lane. We're going strolling down Brett's memory lane. I mean, yeah, we're still going to get a video game corner this episode, though. A little tiny one. What? Um, I'm just kidding. I know what it is. Um, although speaking of 90s, that was a that was a Tim Allen impression. Apparently, I pulled out there. Ooh. Good for you. Um, speaking of things from the 90s that now make us cringe. Um, and in fourth place, we have Encino Man, which is the movie that we've just talked about. It opens actually to $9.866 million. And its first weekend, again, goes on to gross 40. Uh, so, I mean, probably, you know, for a comedy, that's probably not terrible. Uh, but considering Lethal Weapon 3 has grossed $70.5 million in two weeks, um, you know, not looking great. Uh, in fifth place in its 10th weekend down from number two, the weekend before is basic instinct that, uh, it's the, uh, the Paul Verhoeven, uh, Sharon stone sex thriller. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got in its eighth week, Beethoven, uh, in its 28th week, uh, beauty and the beast. I think that one might have been a re-release, um, or maybe like, cause that was an Oscar player the year before. So that might, they might be bringing that back to try to milk a few more summer dollars out of that one late summer, or I guess early summer, late spring, uh, in eighth, Robert Altman's the player fan freaking tastic movie. Uh, Robert Altman, of course, who we have discussed in this podcast is the director of Popeye. And then in ninth place, uh, Woody Harrelson proving once and for all that white men can't jump, especially when they're squaring off with Wesley Snipes. And then finally, in 10th place, a movie that we referenced earlier in this episode, Wayne's World. Party time. Excellent. Did we reference that movie earlier? Yeah, because Michael DeLuise is in that movie. Oh, okay. Right, right, right. Yeah, try to keep up. I blacked out. I must have blacked out. <laughs> I mean, I, I given your track record this episode, I don't blame you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the Tomatometer score for Encino Man is 17%. Uh, the critics' consensus, Encino Man isn't the first unabashedly silly comedy to embrace its stupidity and amass a cult following, but whether or not it works for you will largely be determined by your tolerance for Polly Shore. <laughs> wow, I could not have put that better. That is an absolutely credible, incredible and apt synopsis. That is spot on, yeah. Wow. 
Um, and yes, again, at the time he was all the rage. And again, that's a thing that happened that we all let happen. Uh, the meta score is 25 based on generally unfavorable reviews from 20 critics. And the letterboxed star rating is 2.8. Brett, how do you rank the 1992 Brendan Fraser, Sean Astin, Polly Shore comedy and Sino Man out of five stars. Uh, I give it a two and a half, right down the middle. Right down the middle, and I am double checking my letterbox. I think I gave it the same, and I did, in fact, give Encino Man a two and a half stars. Um, it, it's one I honestly thought I was going to rank a lot higher, maybe three and a half or four, and then I watched it, and I was like, no, that's I can't do that. That's indefensible. <laughs> I would have been very surprised. Yeah, no, I, as would I. Um, but yeah, and, and honestly, the the two and a half is at least a half of that is for nostalgia factor, and another half is just the goodwill that I've amassed over the years for Brendan Fraser. So I mean, you know, is it a great movie? No. Is it worth revisiting? Honestly, probably not. But uh, oh, I can't believe we did not talk about Eric Avari. We have literally not mentioned him at all this episode, and that is a crying freaking shame. Brett, are you familiar with Eric Avari? I don't believe that I am. You are absolutely familiar with Eric Avari. You probably just don't know him by his name. You would probably absolutely know him, though, if you saw a picture of the man. I am going to uh, just DM you in the chat here his IMDb profile. And it's it's going to be another one of those things where, uh, just like it was with our Dick Tracy episode and William Forsyth, you're going to take one look at him and go, oh, yeah, okay, I know who that guy is. Okay, yep, I know who that guy is. <laughs> Yep. Uh, he is uh, he plays uh, one of the uh, <laughs> racial stereotypes of a character in the convenience store where uh, Polly Shore teaches um, Brendan Fraser how to, among other things, wheeze the juice, uh, which involves sticking your entire head under the icy machine and turning it on rather than pouring it into a cup like a decent human being. Uh, and apparently we thought that was the height of hilarity in 1992. Uh, again, it's not defensible. It's a thing that happened, and we all let it happen. But Eric Avari is a very storied actor, one of the great that guy actors. I'm going to run through a few of his credits. The one I usually know him from is Stargate, uh, the movie Stargate, not the show Stargate, in which he played uh, Kasuf, the head of the um, the tribe in on the other planet that they go to. He is in an episode of deep space nine, Vedek Yarka. He plays the character he plays there. He's fantastic in it. He is in Aladdin on ice. Apparently they did a TV movie of Aladdin on ice. And he is the mystic traveler in Aladdin on ice. I don't know. Never seen it, but that's incredible. Um, and he has, he basically just shows up in just about everything. He is also in the mummy, the Brendan Fraser mummy. So they, they reunite for that, for that, film which is just a great little piece of trivia that i'm sure everyone on imdb has pointed out at least 10 times uh the 13th warrior which is a john um, john mctiernan movie he actually goes on to reprise his role as kasuf in the stargate television show which is a thing i did not know um but yeah i mean he's in mr deeds of course he's in mr deeds if you're an adam sandler fan you know that um, but yeah, I mean, he, the guy just shows up in every, he's Electra's dad in Daredevil. 
suffice it to say, we will find many other uh, opportunities and occasions to talk about Eric Avari over the course of this podcast. Um, he's great. Every time I see him, I, I think he more than Brendan Fraser even is the character or is the actor I have the most goodwill for in this movie. Uh, sure. Uh, you, you don't have to agree. It's fine. I just uh, love Eric Avari. Sure. Yeah, I mean, he's a great that guy actor. Still more goodwill for Brendan Fraser for me. Sure. I And you know what? That's fine. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying I have always loved Eric Avari ever since I was a kid. I was like, oh, I know that guy. He was one of the first that guy actors that I could pick out routinely. So, yeah, I I nothing but but nothing but love and goodwill for Eric Avari. But, yeah, do we have anything else that we want to um, say about uh, 1992's Encino Man? Or do we want to do we want to put this one into the annals of prehistory where it belongs? Uh, well, I mean, no, I'd be remiss if I did not talk about, because, uh, I mean, there's a video game uh, in this movie, plays uh, yes. a bit of Rad a role, Mobile. good old Radmobile, which I Radmobile. honestly wasn't aware was a real game, because a lot of times they take pre-existing games and just rebrand them in a lot of these movies, but turns out Radmobile, actually a game. So you uh, which, did not play Radmobile in the 90s? No, I was not much for the uh, racing games. Never really have okay. been. Unless it's a Mario Kart. Uh, I'm into those. But yeah, so, I mean, this Radmobile came out in February of 91. So it was a fairly new game. So it totally makes sense that uh, they wanted to license it and promote it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, released by Sega Genesis. Released by Sega. Mm-hmm. Um, and... It was Sega's first 32-bit game, which was a big deal at the time. So 32 whole bits, you're out of your mind. That's that's uh, wild, man. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, Look at the graphics. They're so incredible. Right? Like That's, <laughs> that's twice as many as a Super Nintendo. Get the hell out of here. How are you doing that? <laughs> um, and, then la- and then Nintendo would later would later go on to say, hold my beer and double that. So, yeah, 64, right? 64 bits. How how did they even do it? Who knows? Um, Nobody knows to this day. Um, But (laughs) what's great is an interesting bit of trivia, which is really the only reason I really even wanted to mention it, is Radmobile is the first appearance of Sonic the Hedgehog. He is (gasps) a he's an ornament hanging in the driver's rearview mirror. Um, Interesting. And that's it's a whole five months before the release of the original Sonic the Hedgehog. So, and I mean, you only got to see him in arcades. So, I mean, they, they would yes eventually release it as a 32-bit game on their 30 sure. uh, 32X, which was an uh, adapter that you plugged into the top of the Sega Genesis, um, which I owned. It it didn't. Of look, course you did. Of course it you did. It didn't look much different. Is the thing. It was mm. only 16 more bits. You really couldn't tell the difference. I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, so that that adapter thing was kind of like a game genie, but it didn't like unlock any content for you. No, it didn't unlock any content. They just they they touted it as like the graphics were supposed to be better. Now, when they when they ported it to Sega Saturn in 94, it obviously looked a lot better because then you're getting, you know, PlayStation level graphics and mm-hmm you know, look significantly better. It was on par with the Nintendo 64. Okay. Um, but I mean, it, it, it is great. I mean, it, it's similar to get all the other racing games out at the time, like outrun, 
so if you've played any of those, you've probably played Radmobile. But uh, it was, it, hey, it's Link's favorite game in the movie. It's and the it, movie that inspires him to drive a car uh, on two wheels for way longer than any car would be able to drive on two wheels. Yeah, it, exactly. And yeah, it wasn't really it wasn't really super popular in America, though, um, despite it being an Encino man and getting a lot of popularity. But I mean, it was and it was only the seventh highest grossing dedicated arcade game in Japan, which you would think doesn't sound that popular. But you have to understand how prevalent arcades were in Japan. Like imagine I was going to say the yeah, arcade, arcade boom was huge. Yeah. Imagine the arcade boom in America in the 80s. Crank it up to 11. That's the arcade culture in Japan. Um, and it's still going to this day. Uh, when I was over there a couple of years ago, arcades are still everywhere. Uh, hmm. Mainly in um, mainly in Akihabara. That's where you're going to find all the arcades. And unfortunately, due to COVID, a couple of them have shut down, hmm. um, which is a real shame. But, you know, that's, that's COVID. Yay. Yeah. But uh, but there's still a big deal over there, even with the prevalence of consoles. But yeah, so that's that's this Brett's video game corner for an unexpected one Um, (laughs) for a game uh, for a movie that itself did not produce a game, but has a game prominently featured therein. So, hey, in the immortal words of Akon still counts. Before we take off, then, I do want to mention that we did receive an email from our good buddy Tucker uh, responding to our uh, our little top five bonus episode. Um, who, and we had, I think, at the end of that, talked about the fact that the Rocketeer had gotten a uh, resurgence in popularity. And and now was they were talking about they're talking about doing a, a, a sequel slash reboot, maybe with David Ayelowo. And uh, Tucker mentions that the Rocketeer has gotten a lot of traction because it's literally one of the best pieces of cinema ever created by evolved man. So there you go. That's what Tucker has to say on the subject. And uh, he's right. Quite frankly, very true. Life is too short to spend with people who don't think that the Rocketeer is one of the best pieces of cinema ever created by evolved man. So there you go. And speaking of Tucker, we want to thank him for uh, writing our theme song. Uh, which you heard at the beginning and we'll hear here very shortly when we end the episode. It plays at the beginning and end of every episode, and we appreciate that he has uh, crafted that for us. So thank you, sir. We appreciate it. We love it every time we hear it, and even sometimes when we don't. But you can check us, the podcast, out on social media at Pod. We are on Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us in all of those locations. Uh, engage with us on those platforms, or if you don't want to do so, you can be like Tucker and shoot us an email, disenfranchpod at gmail.com, and uh, hit us up there, man. We, we'd we love to hear from you. Let us know what you think of the podcast. Let us know if there are any movies that you want us to uh, discuss, and we will take them under advisement for sure. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Stephen Fox, where you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Chewy Walrus. Brett, where can we find you on social media? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at sus, S-U-S underscore Warlock. Fantastic. And we ask that while you're out there following us on all those social media platforms, uh, pop into your podcatcher of choice and leave us a nice juicy five-star rating and review. Uh, that really goes a long way to helping us find a new audience and uh, it's been working. So we appreciate those of you who have done so. We invite uh, those of you who have not to continue to do so. 
uh, it really helps us out quite a bit, especially if you're doing that on Apple Podcasts. That probably helps us out the most. Just getting the good disenfranchised name out there. Although after this episode, (laughs) you might not want to, or maybe you do. I don't know. At any rate, this has been the Disenfranchised Podcast. Uh, Join us next week when we talk about another failed franchise starter, one of those movies who just didn't quite get the juice. Uh, Until then, I am your host, Stephen Foxworthy. For my co-host, Brett Rice, and myself, we'll be back.